This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for May 19th, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, news editor Elizabeth Kulata joins us to talk about human migrations, ancient and modern. And David Grimm is here to give us this week's hits from our online news site. We're still getting free transcripts from Scribby.com this week. Please let us know if you find it useful. So a special thanks to Scribby.com, audio transcription perfected. 75 cents a minute at 99% accuracy. The best deal on the internet for audio transcription. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have a story on overriding out-of-control AR. (laughs) This is augmented reality. Different from virtual reality, which is a complete immersion in a simulated environment, AR is more like a layer between you and the world, filled with helpful and not-so-helpful messages and icons and ads and sounds and little toys, little pets. (laughs) Uh, But the not-so-helpful ones are what we're going to focus on today. And before we even get to that, Dave, what is your killer app for AR? What do you want to see in your glasses that's not really there in the world? What do I want to see? Oh, man. I want to see everybody I look at have a cat head. (laughs) (laughs) So you just want cat vision, but a vision of cats. Yeah, not cat vision, but a vision of cats. I don't think we're going to get that. But, you know, this is important because, you know, you can think more practically if you're driving down the road and your windshield has augmented reality, maybe your windshield is telling you like, hey, slow down, there's traffic head, there's a pedestrian right across the street. Hey, you should make sure you see that stop sign and maybe it's a little obscured by the bushes or whatever. So you can imagine something like that being very useful in a driving situation. You can also imagine if ads start popping up in your windshield or some right. hacker takes over your windshield and like obscures that pedestrian or that stop sign, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. Right. And just to add, my killer app, which is not that killer, is bird identification. So it shows you, it analyzes the birds that you're looking at and tells you what they are. I don't know why I'm into this right now, but every time I see a bird, I really want to know what it is and what it's doing. I don't think your bird app and my cat app are going to get along. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the things that we're going to talk about is this all sounds helpful and fun, but there's this concern that these things could interfere with... Right your safety or your everyday life. So 
What are scientists thinking that we should do about that? Well, the researchers created this program called Arya, which for you Game of Thrones fan is actually named after a Game of Thrones character. Um, but basically what it does is it sort of plays air traffic controller. It really pays attention to all of the information coming to, say, your virtual windshield, and it prioritizes what you're going to see versus what gets hidden. For example, your cat app is on, so everybody has a cat head, but they're much bigger than human heads, and the cat head is blocking something important, perhaps. Like a stop sign. Like a stop <laughs> sign, right. So it's going to somehow control that. What kind of rules would it operate under? Don't allow any augmented reality objects to block important augmented reality objects or any augmented reality objects so nothing's blocking anything else. Don't obscure really important things like pedestrians and road signs. This is a solution, but I feel like there's not really a problem yet. I don't have access to to (laughs) AR right now. And certainly I don't have an experience of overlapping AR objects or logos. So is this, you know, a solution? Well, that's what I like problem? about the study. I mean, we, we, you know, we always, it feels like we're always talking about stuff like there's a problem. Right. Now researchers have to come up with a solution. Here the researchers are actually being proactive. They're like, this is a problem you could have in five to 10 years. Let's tackle it now. Yeah. And I like that there is an outside comment that says, I have a problem with this solution. <laughs> right. Right. And this person is basically saying like, you know, we shouldn't be so quick to stem the flow of information. Information's good. Plus, he has this anecdote <laughs> about trying to play ninja in his uh, yard and fighting zombies and augmented reality. And all of a sudden, he looks at a stop sign and the zombies disappear because Arya has said the stop sign is more important than the zombies and he's not able to ninja kick his zombies anymore. Another problem that maybe nobody has encountered yet, and maybe there'll be a solution for it. Now we have a story on repairing big bone bricks. Uh, We made a video about this study and hunting for a good x-ray image of a broken bone was kind of torture for me. I don't (laughs) like looking at this stuff, but they are really common. Something like 100,000 people a year in the U.S. get fractures that are so big that you can't just, you know, splint it. And the person, you know, heals gradually by themselves. Right. A cast isn't going to do anything for these things. You've got these big gaps where the bone should be. And in that case, the best that doctors can do is they'll do, uh, they'll try to do like a bone transplant, sometimes from you. They may take part of your pelvis, which causes its own complications, or they may try to get a bone from a cadaver, but those never really work very well. So there's really no great solutions if you've got one of these kind of massive, what doctors call a non-union fracture. None of these are ideal. Grafting with your own bone, getting some cadaver bone, amputation. So researchers have been looking for ways of improving grafting. And in this case, they're looking at using gene therapy to assist bone grafts. How would this work? Well, you know, what they're trying to do is they create this scaffolding that will bridge this gap. The ideal is to fill it with cells that are actually going to make bone. You make bone for yourself. And the cells that do this are these bone-forming cells called mesenchymal stem cells or MSCs. And you really want them to migrate into the area and to also differentiate into what are called osteocytes, which are the bone-producing cells. And as you can imagine, that's not, none of those are easy tasks. Researchers have been working really hard through all these steps, getting the scaffolding, getting the cells to migrate in, getting the cells to differentiate. And that's where we're at now, getting a good level of differentiation of these stem cells in a broken bone. 
and gene therapy comes in. How does that work, Dave? Well, you know, usually gene therapy works with a virus, but, you know, researchers didn't have a whole lot of luck with that, especially for this type of procedure. And so here what they did was they started with their scaffolding. They had this, what they call a collagen matrix. Then they create this solution that contains genes. It's filled with these genes, which are going to cause the MSCs to differentiate into osteocytes to create bones. And these genes are actually encased in these gas-filled, really tiny bubbles. Um, And what happens is they inject this solution of these bubbles into the fracture site, and then they go over the area with an ultrasonic wand. And what happens is the wand's ultrasound actually burst these micro bubbles. And this briefly pinches nano-sized holes in any stem cells that are around, allowing the gene to get in and ostensibly allowing these stem cells to turn into osteocytes and thus create bone. The researchers tested this in animals and they got results um, that are as good as a self-graft, but obviously um, without the pain of having a piece of bone removed from your pelvis. This sounds very promising. What are the caveats here? Well, this is in pigs, not in people. It was also done in young animals, and mostly, and young animals tend to have more MSCs than older animals do and than older humans do, and older humans are more likely to break their bones. And so the question is, is this going to work in people? Is it going to work in older people? So a couple more hurdles to be overcome. But experts seem excited about it and think it could move into clinical trials fairly soon. Last up, we have a story on gecko-like robot feet or hands. If you want a robot to pick up a tomato, you're in for some programming. It needs to grip firmly enough to grasp the fruit, but not so firm as to bruise it. And that strength may need to vary from tomato to tomato. To get around this problem, researchers thought, what if we just make the robot's hands really sticky? Like gecko sticky. Like gecko level (laughs) sticky. And let's talk about what makes a gecko foot sticky. Well, gecko feet rely on what are called van der Waals forces. And, and basically what these forces involve is atoms, which are tend to be slightly positively charged on one side and negatively charged on the other. When they come close to each other, the van der Waals forces can generate an attraction. And a gecko's toe pads are covered with tiny hair-like fibers that maximizes contact with surfaces, which amplifies this effect. And that's why geckos are able to climb walls, climb upside down, basically be like Spider-Man. Okay, so build me a robot like that. <laughs> right. So so that, you know, that seems simple enough. But the problem is if you try to do that with a robot, you have to have a really kind of strong backing material, like almost like a paddle. And you can imagine if you've got a robot hand that looks like a paddle, it's not going to be able to grip something like a tomato because it can't curb. It's going to be too rigid. And so the question is, can you make something that's flexible, but also has these gecko-like properties? Okay. So you need the gecko foot to be even more gecko-like. How did they introduce this flexibility to robot hands? They created what they call fibrillar adhesives on a membrane or FAM for short. Um, And that basically is the flexible backing. And what they found is that even with a very small hand, something on the order of 2.5 square centimeters, which is about the size of a dime, their gripper could lift objects weighing more than 300 grams, maybe something the weight of a can of soda. Uh, What can these be used for? I mean, we've talked about tomatoes. We've talked about soda. I mean, what are we going to just be eating with these? Well, you know, other than having a robot in your kitchen that can make you really nice sliced cherry tomatoes. Feed me one grape at a time. Exactly. Um, You know, there's factories that deal with delicate electronics that may be small and very oddly shaped, and you can't handle those roughly. 
Or we could have robots that climb walls, especially very irregular walls that aren't just straight flat surfaces, but actually have maybe a lot of curves and contours in them. Um, Now, what that would be useful for, you know, things like search and rescue, exploring other planets, who knows? Okay, what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story and a video about how some tiny hopping birds may shed light on how some of the first dinosaurs took flight. Also a story about mice with 3D printed ovaries that were able to produce live offspring. And for Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got the latest in the saga of Paolo Macarini, a former superstar surgeon that fell from grace in Sweden and now has fallen from grace in Russia as well. Also a story about an invasion in genetically engineered petunias and what the government is doing about it. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. This episode is brought to you by Dignity Health. Dignity Health is the fifth largest health system in the U.S. and the largest in California. Their mission is delivering compassionate, high-quality, affordable health services for all. With a history rooted in kindness, the mission and values Dignity Health were founded upon remain the same today. Polls show that Americans want to be more mindful, to pay attention to where they are and what they're doing in the moment. But busy lives and busy brains make this very difficult to accomplish. Last month, Science actually featured a career story on the mental health challenges for being a graduate student in science. This week, Nature has a long story on managing work-life balance for researchers in the face of burnout. Going all out in science and medicine can be tough on the mind. Sometimes, beating back burnout literally means taking two minutes to yourself. Dignity Health is working to make mindfulness a practice for 39 of its hospitals, encouraging employees to set aside daily time for quiet contemplation. Join Dignity Health and set aside two minutes every day to check in with yourself and reflect on your relationships, work, or daily activities. To help promote this effort, use the hashtag TakeTwoMins, that's take the number two, mins, on social media and visit DignityHealth.org slash TakeTwoMins for more mindfulness research and tips. This week's issue features a large section on migration, with stories on ancient travels and new ones. Elizabeth Kulata edited the news section and is here to talk us through it. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thanks, Sarah. Why is now a good time to write about human migration? Because there are more people migrating than ever before, There are 250 million international migrants today. That's more than ever before in human history. It's also about 3% of the world population. So migration is really something that it affects everybody, both those people on the move and also the people in host countries who are having to accommodate these international immigrants. Hmm. Well, Anne Gibbons contributed a story on ancient human migrations and mixing. It focuses on the contrast between folklore and what new science is telling us about human history. Can you share a couple of the surprises that turned up in her story? Sure. And the reason she did this story, by the way, is because although there are more migrants than ever before, migration is old. In other Mm -hmm. words, we have always done it. Homo sapiens has been migrating since we arose more than 50,000 years ago. So Anne looked at 
some of the stories that ethnic groups like to tell about their migration and then what science is doing to test those. So for example, there's a myth about the first Germans and the first German is a guy called Hermann or Arminius. And Arminius is a Roman name because he was a guy who lived during Roman times. And the myth is that he united the Germanic tribes and they rose up in a rebellion against the Romans and defeated them. And now there's some truth to this because there was a battle where Arminius got together with a few other tribes and they beat back the Romans, much to the Romans' shock. However, um, science has tested that myth and found that for starters, Arminius or Hermann was not a pure German, if a pure German means somebody whose ancestors have always lived, say, in Central and Northern Europe. Because uh-huh. all Europeans, as it turns out, are composites. They are the descendants of many, many migrations, and three big ones in particular. So over the past 15,000 years, three big migrations have contributed to all Europeans. And so Hermann and Germans of his day and later are composites. What kinds of new research are helping to unearth these past passages that people have taken? So there's two specific techniques, revolutionary techniques, really, that allow us to do this. And one is ancient DNA, because ancient DNA is where you can look at the DNA from remains, from skeletons tens of thousands of years old. So, And that's a really great way to find out who was related to whom, right? That's the gold standard for that. Another technique is isotopes. Now, isotopes are little chemical differences in substances, and they can look at the isotopes in, say, an ancient skeleton's bones or teeth, and they can find out if the person migrated during their life or if they stayed in one place, if they stayed in the place that they were born. And the reason they can do that is because when we eat and drink, our bodies take in isotopes, these chemical isotopes, and they reflect our local surroundings. So if you were to, for example, grow up in the Black Forest of Germany and then migrate to Spain, your bones and teeth would have a record of that. A lot of the myths that are busted in this story are European. Why is there this regional focus? And does the science reflect that? Or are there other parts of the world that are also receiving this kind of scrutiny? There is more work being done in Europe, probably for two reasons. One is because um, many of the researchers working on this are European and the the cutting edge techniques arose in Europe, but also because they have access to ancient skeletons. In some parts of the world, people are very um, hesitant to do studies on ancient skeletons, but Europeans are okay with this. And so you can uh, get access to the skeletons and do the studies. However, people are looking in other parts of the world. And one interesting one is in the Middle East, where people are exploring the identity of the Philistines of the Bible. And, uh, you know, the Philistines, the word Philistine in English is still a slur. It means somebody who, you know, um, that's right, non-believer. And also, if you're a Philistine, it seems like, you know, you don't know much. You're uncultured, right? Yeah. And so, but in the Bible, they've always been something of a mystery because they show up David slays Goliath, and Goliath was a Philistine, and David was the Israelite with a slingshot. Um, And after that, you know, the Philistines disappear from the Bible and also from other texts. And so people have wondered who these people were. And so the latest science on this suggests that they were actually sea people, maybe even pirates, and they were a combination of cultures so that they came from other parts of the Middle East and the Mediterranean, and they all came together as sort of forming this sort of seafaring culture. And they may have assimilated 
into the Middle East, into parts of what is now Israel, which means that they may be among the ancestors of some Jewish people alive today. Well, let's move on to the next story in the package, and this is on the Yazidi, which maybe not everyone is familiar with. So what role does migration play in their lives, and what is science telling about us about it now? The Yazidis are a persecuted minority from Iraq. We're studying them because the Islamic State attacked them, and they um, were forced to leave their homes in Iraq. Their story is one of really surprising resilience in the face of these horrific attacks. For example, some Yazidi women were captured and forced into sexual slavery, and now researchers have recovered some of those women and are helping them to heal. And so the story of the Yazidis is illuminating the factors that may help refugees heal from some of these horrific traumas. The next story is on bias against immigrants. So these are people who have migrated and moved to a new land. And what can research tell us about combating the bias from people who already live there? Yes, we all have a tendency to be biased against outsiders. Science has shown us that. But science also shows us that that bias can wax and wane depending on certain conditions. And that, in a way, is hopeful because if certain things can increase bias, certain other things can perhaps decrease it. For example, contact between refugees and local people is one way to reduce bias from the locals. For example, if migrants quickly learn the new language of their host country, they can better communicate with people and you can have actual conversations person to person. And this tends to mitigate bias. Now for something completely different. John Bohannon writes in this issue a data-driven story on scientific migrations, how researchers move from place to place during their careers. Where did this data for the data-driven story come from? He got this data from an unexpected source. It turns out that scientists are surprisingly hard to track because science is a very global profession and many scientists cross national borders for their work. But every country keeps statistics differently and also countries may define scientists differently. So what John did was to go to a set of data from an organization called ORCID. So ORCID, O-R-C-I-D, so that ID part is really important, is an international organization that basically exists to give researchers a unique identifier. So it solves the John Smith problem, you know, where researchers have the same name, but different scientific output, and we need to be able to keep that straight. So how can that data help track people's movements around the world? So it turns out that ORCID offers you the opportunity, offers researchers the opportunity to put their public CV up on the ORCID database. So in other words, your education, your affiliations, your jobs, all this kind of stuff going back several decades. So many scientists have done this. There are 3 million ORCID users and about one quarter of them have put the details of their education and their work history and its locations into the ORCID system. And so that means that what we could do and what John Bohannon did is to analyze the profiles in ORCID to see who went where and when in order to determine migration patterns. So one thing that came out of this story was the cover. And the cover of Science This Week has the migration path of the most 
migratory researchers that he was able to pull out of this data set. What do we know about those people? This was fascinating. What he was able to do was simply to look for the people who had crossed the most borders. And the most migratory scientist that we could find in the ORCID database is a guy named Romantis Kadzius. He's originally from Lithuania. He says that his home is wherever he works. <laughs> he has just moved to Shanghai University. He's a synthetic biologist. Several of these most migratory scientists say that there is sometimes a cost to moving so much. And Kazias, for example, says that uh, he's 42 and still single. Hmm. Well, there are so many stories in this package. What am I missing? Is there anything else that you really want to particularly mention that appears in these pages? I think we covered it. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Great. Elizabeth Kulata is a deputy news editor for Science. She edited this week's big section on human migrations. Check it out online at sciencemag.org. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.